Lyme disease is an elusive disorder to diagnose and complicated and controversial to treat. What can we learn from one of the world's experts' cases? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is international Lyme disease expert, Dr. Ray Stricker. Dr. Stricker is the medical director of Union Square Medical Associates, and he serves as the president of the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society. Welcome. Thanks, Leslie. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Well, it's wonderful to have you here. I can't wait to learn from your your long experience treating this disease. How long have you been an expert on treating Lyme disease, Ray? Uh, Well, I really got into uh, the whole field by accident because I was doing a lot of AIDS work back in the 1990s, and we were working on a test for AIDS. As part of that testing, we were looking at some patients with Lyme disease as controls, and they turned out to have a very peculiar immunologic defect. And then based on that, once I did that study. The floodgates opened, and that's how I got involved in the disease. I bet you've been involved in some interesting and, and complicated cases. Could you share one with us? Well, the neurologic uh, form of Lyme disease is probably the most striking and peculiar, and um, one aspect of the disease that's very unusual is a presentation with something called Addy pupil. Uh, Addy pupil is a pupil that doesn't react very well. And uh, I had a patient come in and complaining that her husband thought that she was taking some form of amphetamine because her eyes were always wide open, her pupils were always wide open. And she was very uh, disturbed by this because she really didn't use any psychoactive drugs at all and had never done that. And uh, it turned out that what she had was this funny type of neurologic uh, form of dilated pupil, which classically has been reported in infections like syphilis, but in fact has been seen now, I have about a dozen patients with Lyme disease who have that form of pupillary dilation. So that's one issue, that, that's one area that's kind of interesting. Another type of neurologic syndrome that uh, has been reported in Lyme disease is musical hallucinations. And I've had two patients with these hallucinations. The first one came in complaining that she would hear the star-spangled banner playing in her head. And she didn't just hear it occasionally. She heard it over and over and over again. It would wake her up at night. And it was interesting that one of her earliest childhood memories was that her parents would play patriotic music. And she actually hated patriotic music. So it was very disturbing to hear the Star Spangled Banner constantly in her head. She was treated with intravenous antibiotics and her musical hallucinations disappeared. These symptoms do respond to, to treatment for Lyme disease. So hopefully that's not the same as when you hear a bad song on the radio and you can't get it out of your head. <laughs> <laughs> No, actually, that's called an earworm. It comes from the German, and that's really very different because you can usually control that, but with the type of hallucinations with Lyme disease, you really can't control them. So that's, that's the big difference. Ah. What other kinds of things do you see? Well, we've seen all kinds of bizarre symptoms. Uh, The twitching in Lyme disease, muscle twitching, can be very striking. And one of my favorite stories is that I had an attorney who presented with severe muscle twitching to the point where he would wake his wife up at night because he was twitching so much. I treated him for his Lyme disease, and his twitching got better, but his wife insisted that he go to the big academic center down the street to uh, get diagnosed because, of course, community physicians don't know anything. So he went to the big academic center down the street, and he got the big academic center treatment, which was he was seen by the medical student, the intern, the resident, the fellow, uh, the junior attending, and finally he was sitting there 
And the chief of neurology walked into the room and sat down opposite him and said, okay, now, twitch. <laughs> and he said, well, you don't understand. I can't control my twitching. It just happens. And, and she said, well, you know, this isn't Lyme disease. Lyme disease doesn't cause this. Go away and don't bother us. <laughs> wow. So that's kind of the attitude toward Lyme disease from the academic community. Hmm. Now, I would think the arthritis and joint pain, that that, that must often get misdiagnosed as all kinds of things. Well, it, it does, and, and especially because the joint pain that's seen is this migratory joint pain, and it's something rather bizarre, and, and sometimes patients are kind of embarrassed to talk about it because, you know, when they go to the doctor and say, you know, I had this terrible pain in my knee, and it just went away, most doctors say, well, gee, that's not compatible with anything that we learned in medical school. So it can't, you know, this, this person must be crazy. So, but, but that kind of migratory joint pain is very, very common in Lyme disease. And when you hear that story, it's almost always a tip-off that you're dealing with Lyme disease. How quickly might that pain last? It literally can last for a couple of hours or a day oh. and disappear, completely disappear. Huh. And it's really probably an indication of the inflammatory factors that are stimulated by the bacteria, which then come out and then are cleared over that period of time. Well, and certainly you would think that it would be easy to dismiss as a patient that, oh, you must have bumped your knee or something and, and now it's better. Oh, sure. I mean, that's always the issue, but, but it's always, and the patients always say that, you know, and I didn't have any trauma, you know, I didn't do anything to my knee. I was just doing, you know, my usual stuff and all of a sudden, boom, it started killing me and it was the worst pain I've had in years. And then just as suddenly it disappeared. Huh. Now, do you see people often present with the typical rash or, or not? Maybe dermatologists would see that more. Well, actually, we do see that occasionally, and we've had some very interesting cases. For example, I had one patient who was living in Thailand, and she had been to upstate New York and was playing out in the woods and got a rash. And she was on her way back to Thailand, and she remembered she had read something about this bullseye rash and Lyme disease. So she stopped off in San Francisco and came to see me with this fading bullseye rash and said, what do you think this is? <laughs> I said, well, I think you got Lyme disease, and here's your doxycycline. Uh, have fun going home to Thailand. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So it's, it's really the world of international travel these days. But we do see other cases of the bullseye rash, and the other one that I like to talk about, and this really shows the misinformation about Lyme disease, was a 7- or 8-year-old boy who was brought in by his mother because he had been out on the golf course with his father and was playing in the leaf litter, and he came in with this rash that was essentially his entire abdomen. It was centered in his belly button, which is where the tick was embedded, and he had this bullseye rash that was his entire abdomen. So mom took him to the pediatrician, and the pediatrician said, well, that's very interesting, but it's not Lyme disease. Hmm. And why wasn't it Lyme disease? Because it was October, and there's no Lyme <gasps> disease in October. It's only in spring and summer, like the textbooks say. So that's another misconception, especially in temperate climates. You can see Lyme disease any time of the year, any season, and you have to have a very high index of suspicion for it. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is Dr. Ray Stricker. We are discussing some of his more interesting and perhaps instructive Lyme disease cases. It sounds like we can't really make many assumptions about Lyme disease, that the exception maybe is the rule. 
That's true. I mean, it has very variable presentation. There are a lot of symptoms, a lot of organ systems involved, and um, there's a lot of variability, and you have to have a high index of suspicion for it. Well, Ray, as you know, I'm a psychiatrist, and now I'm deeply concerned that I'm missing Lyme disease in, in my patients. What tips can you give in terms of looking at mental status exam or cognitive function and linking that with Lyme disease? Well, you know, ILADS has a brochure that's called uh, Lyme Disease for Psychiatrists, so I'd be happy to send you one. <laughs> Great. Uh, uh, in fact, the psychiatrists on the East Coast are very tuned into Lyme disease, and some of the best practitioners there who treat Lyme disease are psychiatrists. Mm. But there are a number of symptoms that suggest the disease. In children, for example, if you have cognitive changes and maturation delay, that often is a suggestion that there may be Lyme disease. In uh, older patients, Lyme disease can present with a number of psychiatric symptoms, anything from depression to bipolar disorder to frank psychotic symptoms uh, may be triggered by Lyme disease. So perhaps I should be asking about the migratory joint pain when I hear those sort of symptoms? Sure, that's, uh, that's always a tip-off. Or travel into a high tick uh, infested area. Exactly. That's helpful. I'm hoping Idaho isn't on the high list yet. It's not on the high list, but I have seen some patients from your area, so I know that the ticks are there. And really, anywhere where there are deer or birds, there is a risk of Lyme disease because the deer can carry the the ticks very long distances. Mm -hmm. And we now know that birds can also harbor the infection and also carry the ticks uh, in their migration. So that's one reason why the disease is getting spread all over the continent. But ticks are still the only actual vector for humans. Is that correct? Ticks are the only known vector, although the bacteria has been detected in mosquitoes and fleas and other insects. Uh, but it's never been proven that these insects can transmit the infection. Are there any suspicions that humans can transmit the disease? Well, that's a very controversial uh, topic, and the CDC says absolutely not. But there's a lot of circumstantial evidence and also some animal data that supports the idea that the Lyme disease can be transmitted from person to person. And to give you an idea, if you take a female mouse and you infect it with the Lyme bacteria and then you put it in a cage with another female mouse that is uninfected, the uninfected female mouse will become infected. Now, if you've ever seen mice in a cage, they get all balled up together. There's a lot of very close contact, but obviously it's not sexual contact. It's just very intimate contact that may be associated with transmission of the bacteria. Well, now I have something else to worry about. (laughs) Absolutely. I do have a number of couples who both have positive testing for the disease. And the interesting thing about that is that there's usually one partner who's symptomatic and then the other partner who's asymptomatic. And when you treat both partners, not just the symptomatic one, then the symptomatic partner gets better. So again, it suggests that there may be kind of a ping pong effect if there is indeed direct transmission. But again, uh, I have to defer to the CDC that says that there isn't. Mm -hmm. So can you give us the website, please, of where we can get more information? The website of the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society, or ILADS, is www.ILADS.org. Okay, and ILADS is I-L-A-D-S. That's correct. .org. And then there's also the website of the Lyme Disease Association, which is www.lymedeaseassociation.org. Okay. <laughs> All one word. Oh, spelled out. Uh, yeah, they, somebody else took the LDA part, so they had to settle for that. That is more of a patient-oriented site that has lots of information about Lyme disease and 
uh, political action and uh, features like that. His, really, historically, aren't suspected Lyme disease patients often just considered kooks? They are, and that's really been part of the problem with the disease, that there was a time in the 1990s when it was felt that Lyme disease was being overdiagnosed and overtreated. And unfortunately, I think we're seeing a backlash because of that, that now there's really underdiagnosis and undertreatment because of that perception from many years ago. But the problem is also that Lyme disease can cause neuropsychiatric symptoms. So a lot of these patients really do have those symptoms, but that doesn't mean, you know, just like with syphilis, I mean, syphilis can cause a tertiary state where you get neurologic disease. And that doesn't mean that the people are crazy. It just means that they have tertiary syphilis. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of the same situation with Lyme. Uh, They may have symptoms, uh, psychiatric symptoms, but it may be because of the infection. I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Ray Stricker of San Francisco. We have been discussing Lyme disease. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.